Well, today's a great day. We are returning this morning to the Gospel of Luke. And all God's people said? Amen. Yes, see? Right? Gospel. We took a detour over the last several weeks of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 to take an in-depth look, really, at the doctrine of love. And uh, we are back in Luke chapter 6 today, and we are continuing to look at how Jesus defines the question that really I've entitled this entire series for over the last couple months, and that is, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? Not necessarily what is a Christian by definition of the term Christian, but what is a Christian by way of its outworking in a life? It has been some time since we've specifically been here in Luke chapter 6, although we have referred to it even when we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 because of what Jesus says here. But I want to read for us from verse 20 down through verse 38 so that we can have this entire section once again in our minds and the words of Jesus really just ringing in our ears as we look more intently at just the next few verses that we, where we left off before we jumped into 1 Corinthians 13. So follow along, beginning in verse 20. Luke says, And turning his gaze on his disciples, of course, Jesus is preaching here. He's beginning to speak. He began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, and ostracize you, and cast insults at you, and spurn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day, and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And woe to you when all men speak well of you, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. And just as you want people to treat you, treat them in the same way. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. 
but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. They will pour into your lap, for by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Let's pray once again, asking the Lord to attend to our time. Father, we we need you so desperately in our understanding. We need your help to to really grasp what is here. We need your help in living these things out for the days are evil in which we live. There are, is wickedness all around and our heart conjures up its own sense of wickedness in which it satisfies itself by its own desires. Lord, we want to do what honors you and that means most often that we need to deny ourselves. So Lord, help us this morning to grasp the truth of what you're saying. This is the character, the outworking of those who follow you, the Christian. Lord, help this be the reflection of our life. Help this be on our minds and our hearts as we interact with all that you allow to take place in our life. And we'll give you all the praise for all eternity because you alone deserve it. In Christ's name, amen. I want us to think about creation for a moment. When, when God created mankind, He created him to be a worshiper. When God fashioned man in the image of Himself. Man was fashioned in such a way by the wisdom of God that he was to be a worshiper of God. So mankind was created to honor His Creator, to glorify Him with all that he did, all that he said, his very being, all that God had established in the heart of man was to be glorifying God. And yet, of course, we understand the story. Man chose by his willful rejection to rebel against his Creator. Man chose, although he was the creature, to worship himself. And because of his sinful rebellion, because of his unwillingness to trust his creator, mankind has a severed relationship with God to such a degree that only the creator can remedy the problem. And so that is exactly what God did. God made a way. He sent his only begotten son to be a man on the earth. He would be one who would live in perfect harmony with the Father, with the Creator. One who would still fulfill perfectly the will of the Creator and then die for the sins of all who refuse to believe. Those who rejected God. That's the only way back to a relationship with the Creator. The only way back is to believe upon the Son, to have a relationship with the Son who is truth. 
And yet, because man has rejected his Creator, because man has turned his back in rebellion against God, he therefore rejects truth. He rejects truth from his Creator. And because he has rejected the living truth, who is Jesus Christ, and because he was created to be a worshiper of truth, man therefore has to devise his own way back to worship with the Creator. And so he creates his own God, a God of his own making, a God that he can control, a God that he can appease by his own self-efforts. And so while man has rejected his true creator, he attempts through his own religion to reach the true God by his own efforts of worshiping a replacement God that he says is the true God. And so as a result, where the love of God should reign in worship to God, hate rules the day. Why? Because the religious hate the truth. And because they hate the truth, they also hate those who are linked with Him who is the truth, Jesus Christ. This is what's happening in our world. This is what's happening since the day Adam chose and chose by his own willful rejection of his Creator to lead even his wife in rebellion against God and therefore all of humanity fell with him. And so one of the distinguishing aspects of being a true Christian is that we are commanded to be proclaimers of the truth to all people. We are commanded to be gospel presenters, gospel proclaimers, to always be ready to give a reason, 1 Peter 3 says, for the hope that lies within us. We're always to be ready to give the truth both in word, in deed, in our actions, in our life, we are proclaimers of the truth. And so when we proclaim the truth of the gospel in word and deed with a world of religious people who are convinced in themselves that they and their false god are the way to eternal life, when we proclaim the truth, the true gospel, to a world that hates the true gospel, the response, barring a supernatural act of God upon their heart, their response is to hate. Their response is to hate the Christian. We come with the gospel truth, and that gospel truth is like a, a nuclear bomb upon the falseness of their religion, and it blows holes ac across their entire religious system and their system of false worship. And what we get for that truth and that love is hate. So by means of their own efforts, they have built a religious tower that in their mind reaches to the heavens so that by their works, when they die, they can just step off the top floor right into the gates of heaven. And so the religious of today are just like those in Genesis chapter 11, who built the Tower of Babel as a, as a monument to reach to God. They thought their physical tower would get them close to God. Every religious ideology today, including atheism, who says there is no God, atheism, they're all fraudulent facades 
that only damn them to hell. Those who follow them will end up in hell. And so when we do as we are commanded to do as true Christians, when we freely give the truth of God through the Gospel, we get hate. We get hate. People hate you. They ostracize you. They cast insults at you, Jesus said. They spurn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. The truth that we share cuts across every evil thought of their hearts in the same way that Jesus' words indict the religious of His day. When Jesus Christ spoke the truth, when He came to those of His time that He walked on this earth, when He spoke the truth to them, they wanted to kill Him. Even those who were closest to Him those of his own hometown. One message, and they wanted to throw him off a cliff. It's any wonder that Jesus would say in John 15, what they have done to me, they will do to you also. What they have done to me, they will do to you. You're attached to me, this is what will happen to you. In fact, just notice verse 40 of Luke chapter 6, Jesus will say, a pupil is not above his teacher. In other words, you will be like me. They will treat you the same as they've, te- te- they've treated me. That is part and parcel to being a Christian. That is part and parcel to true Christianity, to be like Jesus. And when we are like Jesus, as we are because Jesus makes us alive in Christ, He gives us the Spirit of Himself to live within us so that we are able to do what God says, we are able to follow the will of God just like Jesus Christ did, then we should expect the same treatment as Jesus did from the religious world around us. However, we know that Jesus won the day, don't we? Jesus won the day. We know that while they may have killed Jesus, He rose from the dead. We know that He is alive today, that He is in the glories of the heavens at the right hand of the Father, and that He has saved all who will ever believe upon Him from eternal wrath that awaits them for rejecting the Creator. That is simply to say that Jesus, who is the truth, is still the truth, even though some reject Him as the truth. People say, I don't believe Jesus. I don't believe He's God. doesn't matter. doesn't matter. In your rejection, that's not a surprise. No one believes Jesus is God in their rejection against God. We understand that, but that doesn't mean that isn't true. And so the question this morning is this, how do we live as Christians in order to worship our Creator as we have been called to do, as we have been equipped to do? How do we as Christians worship God and reflect the truth of Jesus Christ to those who hate the truth? The answer is to live out our Christianity like actual Christians. Let me say that again. 
the answer to the question of how are we to live as Christians in worship of our Creator and reflecting the very truth of Jesus Christ to a world that hates us is simply this, to live as a true Christian. To live out our Christianity as actual Christians and not as Christians that look and act like those who are not true Christians. In other words, we must live out the supernatural love that we have learned about over the past several weeks. Why? Because it is love that identifies us as true Christians. They will know you are my disciples by your love. John 13, 34. So let me just say it this way. The validity of the gospel in our lives. The validity of the gospel in our lives, i.e. the validity of our true Christianity, the validity of our faith is seen in us living in ways that no other religion can live. The validity of the gospel in our lives is seen in us living in ways that no other religion can live. What do you mean? I mean this, the fake Christian, the fake Christian, the religious person who claims Christianity, those who follow gods of their own making, Right? Everything seems to be labeled as Christianity today. Every religion that's out there wants to take the name Christianity and attach it to ourselves. But those who do not believe in Jesus Christ by faith through repentance because of grace alone are not true Christians. They are a God of their own making, even if they call Him Jesus. So the fake Christian, the religious person... Those who follow a God of their own making cannot live as we are called to live. You say, well, how do they live? How do those people live? Well, Jesus gives us a a snapshot of their life here in verses 32 and 34. He says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Verse 34, if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners. In other words, they love those who love them. That's the fake Christian. That's the religious of the world. That's the rejecters of the truth. They love those who love them. Look at your own life. Look at your own heart. This is how it is in the world today. This is how religions are all over the world who are not true Christianity in Jesus Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, according to the Scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. This is how they live. They live in a perpetual reciprocating kind of love. A reciprocating action whereby if you do something for me, then I'll do it for you. They call it love. They call it virtue. They call it human dignity. 
And yet the reality is that it is just human selfishness. That's all it is. It's just human selfishness spelled under the terminology that doesn't describe its reality. It has nothing to do with selflessness. It has nothing to do with denying self. Nothing to do with the principles of love in which we heard about in 1 Corinthians 13. It has everything to do with selfishness. You do for me, then I'll do for you. Let's call that love. And then the true Christian comes along, and we don't love like that. In fact, we live not to serve self, we live to selflessly serve others, which is something unbelievers are incapable of doing. You say, why? Because that kind of love is only born out of the heart of those who have the Spirit in them because it is a fruit of the Spirit. It is a fruit of the Spirit. So only those who actually know Jesus Christ, only those who have a relationship with the truth can live out that truth of love in their hearts because they have the Spirit in them. An unbeliever cannot do that. It is impossible for them to do that. And so the way the Christian lives out love becomes visual proof of the gospel that we preach. The way we live out that love shows them that what we say they ought to believe and what we believe is the only way. So this expression of love that we are commanded to exercise because we are Christians, this expression of love that we have been equipped to exercise because of the truth, Jesus Christ, shows that the message we preach is believable. You'll think about what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, listen, loving our enemies has an evangelistic nature to it. Loving our enemies shows them that the message of the gospel is believable. And so Jesus says in verse 27, but I say to you who hear. I say to you who hear. Jesus is addressing those who are true believers. He's talking to the true Christian. Speaking to us who believe. Us who have faith in Jesus Christ. Us who say, Jesus Christ is my life. Us who say with our words that we love Jesus. He's speaking to us who have Christ by faith and who have the capacity because of the Spirit of God in us, to take into our understanding what Jesus is saying and put it into practice in our lives. And so Jesus says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. Continually astounded in my mind of how the Apostle Paul relayed that very truth in his own heart to the believers in the churches that he was writing his letters to that we have for us ourselves in Scripture. I'm amazed at how Paul said it, particularly to the Ephesian believers, this staunch church that you read about in Revelation 3 who have forgotten their first love. And Paul says to them in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, be imitators of God. 
This is the same principle that Jesus is saying right here. Love your enemies. That's an imitator of God. Be an imitator of God. Literally, mimic God. That's what the word means in Ephesians 5.1. Mimic God. Now think about that. In the exercise of our Christian lives, in the exercise and practice of our faith in Jesus Christ, we are to imitate God and how He lived in humanity. We, we cannot be God. God is omniscient. God has attributes that are not communicated to us. We are not omnipresent. We are not all-powerful. We, we have attributes of God because we are created in the image of God, and God has given us those communicable attributes whereby we can share them, and one of those is love. We can imitate God in how He lived in humanity, and we know how He lived in humanity because Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Paul can only say that because of Jesus Christ. So we are commanded here by Jesus Christ in verses 27 and 28 to love our enemies, to do good to those who hate us, to bless those who curse us, and to pray for those who mistreat us. Why? Because that's how Jesus lived. That's how Jesus lived out obedience to the will of the Father. This is the will of the Father. And so that is simply to say that when we deal with unbelievers or any person, our disposition is to be truly loving. This is our disposition. This is the Christian disposition. This is what a Christian is. We live out this love. Our actions are to be truly loving. Our disposition is to be truly loving. Our words are to be truly loving. Our thoughts, how we think about that person, how we think in the moment is to be truly loving. So all of the qualities that we heard about in 1 Corinthians 13 are to be seen in us as we live with those who oppose the truth. And because they oppose the truth, they oppose us. Remember, that's what an enemy is, someone who just stands against us. That is what a Christian is, one who loves their opposers, one who loves their enemies. Now, as we pointed out in verses 32 and 30 through 34, the world says, if you do good to me, then I will do good to you. If you treat me well, I will treat you well. That's the definition of love in the world. You scratch my back, then I'll scratch yours. If you don't scratch my back, guess what? I ain't scratching yours. Our world would even say that if you don't do good to me, then it's right for me to hate you. That's how the world responds. You do good to me, I'll do good to you. But if you don't do good to me, it's right for me to hate you. I'll just go on not liking you, not caring for you, not doing anything that would help you. Hate is viewed in our world as a virtue if it is against those who live outside the definition of love that is built upon that idea of reciprocation. If you do good to me, I'll do good to you. So I just sit back and wait for people to treat me in ways that I want, and therefore then I'll treat them the way they have treated me. So the love is purely religious, built on human ability. 
But that's not God's love. That is not God's love. The world says if you don't love like I say it should be, if you don't love the way I define what love ought to be, then it's okay for me to sin against you. You don't agree with how I do things. If you don't agree with how I operate in my life, if you don't agree with how I define my life, then it's okay for me to just lash out against you. It's okay for me to hate you. So when the unbeliever hates us, how are we as true Christians to respond? That's what Jesus is speaking about here, beginning in verse 29 through 31. And he gives four illustrations. Four illustrations, and they all carry the same response. Four illustrations Jesus uses, and they all have the same response For the Christian, this is how we are to respond. Notice what he says to those who are hearing, to the Christian. The first response is to personal humiliation. Notice verse 29, whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. This is personal humiliation. And I I think I have an idea of what goes on in our mind, because it certainly goes on in my mind when I hear those words in my human flesh. My flesh goes, yeah, right. There's no way that I'm going to do that. There's no way that if somebody just lashes out at me, if they hit me, then I'm going to just sit back and say, oh, thank you, sir. Can I have another? None of us rightly think like that. Right? Well, guess what? You're not alone. I'm not alone in that thinking. I think, wow, thank you, Lord, for that. I'm glad I'm not alone. You know why? Because we all have a self-defense reality. We all have this self-defense reality built into us by God. It's there for our own protection. God gave it to us. And you say, well, wait a minute, I'm confused here. Isn't Jesus God? Isn't Jesus saying, listen, if somebody hits you on the cheek, turn the other also, and yet you're just telling me that we all have this self-defense mechanism in us, so, so what is Jesus saying? I'm glad you asked. Because he's not addressing the issue of self-defense here. He's not saying that if you're being accosted by someone that if some thug comes along and starts to just accost you and beat you and mug you, that you're just to allow that to happen. That's not what he's saying. There are actual Christians who have been in genuinely, physically abusive situations. And it's right for them to protect themselves. It's right for them to get on the phone, call the police, and say, hey, listen, you need to come, help. So that can't be what Jesus is talking about here. What is he talking about? Well, remember, remember from our study of John's gospel years ago, Jesus said, they will treat you like they've treated me. And then after that, he he tells his disciples that, that they would have been, they're going to be tossed out of the synagogues. They're going to treat them poorly. That's a That's a huge thing in the Jewish day to be tossed out of the synagogue, to be excommunicated, if you will. The synagogue was the center of community. 
For every Jew, that was the center of relationship, the center of their community and interaction for them as a Jew. That's why in John chapter 9, when the man is who is born blind and Jesus heals him, and then the Pharisees go to the parents and say, what happened with your son? The parents are afraid to say anything because they're fearful of being excommunicated from the synagogue. They're fearful of being thrown out. And so when someone's put out of the synagogue, it's generally for following Jesus. That was a serious matter. But when they were thrown out, they would also dishonor the person by slapping them in the face. It was done to disgrace them. It was done in front of the entire community. They would be physically disgraced in that way. And that's the idea that Jesus has in mind here. He says, listen, when you're humiliated before others, when you're humiliated by the world because you're a follower and a proclaimer of me, right? It's because for the sake of the Son of Man, like he said back in verse 22, when you're humiliated because you stand for Christ, graciously accept the humiliation. That's what he's saying. Graciously accept the humiliation. You say, well, what does he mean then with turn the other cheek, give him the other also? It simply means that when you've been treated in some kind of way that is humiliating to you because of your Stand with the truth. You stand with Jesus Christ. You know what he's saying? He's saying, don't worry about that. Receive the humiliation and just keep on loving and keep on treating them with love and get ready to be hit with humiliation again. In other words, don't retaliate. Don't retaliate in like mind. How they're treating you, don't treat them that way. They hit you with humiliation, take it. Offer them some more. Keep bringing truth to bear. You see, the love that loves its enemies is a non-retaliatory love. It doesn't retaliate. It doesn't try to defend itself. It doesn't try to, to hedge its bets around rejection and hostility that might come its way. It doesn't get angry. It doesn't give back what it's been given. So when we are degraded and humiliated before men because we stand for Christ, the true Christian, the love of the Christian is quick to just go on loving, ready to be wronged again, Why? Because the Christian cares about the enemy's soul. The Christian cares about the enemy's soul. The love of the Christian is willingly vulnerable love. Let me say that again. Christian love is willingly vulnerable love. It's willing to be vulnerable in the face of hostility because it cares more for the soul of that person than it does for own personal justification. The love of the Christian continues to say, you just go on, keep doing that. You go on, keep insulting me, keep hum- trying to humiliate me, keep hitting me because I'm, I'm not going to stop loving you. 
I'm just not going to do that. Whatever you do against me, however you decide to try to stop me, I'm not going to stop loving you no matter how many times you try to humiliate me. I am going to bring the truth to you. I'm going to continue to give you the truth. So Christian love is willingly vulnerable. And in its vulnerability, it is relentless. It is relentless. Never gives up loving. That's why Paul said it that way in 1 Corinthians 13. Love never fails. Love never fails. So the love of God is willingly vulnerable while it is relentless. So personal humility, we, we just take it. Just take it. Love. Love them. Notice number two, the second response. This deals with personal confrontation. Personal confrontation. Verse 29, and whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Of course, Jesus is illustrating a point. He's using this to illustrate in the culture in which he lived, just the depth to which you can go in your love. Not many people in that culture had economic wealth. That's for sure. There was an agrarian society. Few had any kind of wealth. The cloak is your outer coat. They wore it almost all the time. And the common people would have had only one of those garments, and it can get very cold at night in the desert, much to some of our surprise, And the outer coat was often used by many of those people at the time as a, almost like a blanket. They would, they would cover themselves up at night, even when they were sleeping. So it was a, pres- a preserver for them. So the cloak was a necessary item for them. And so one of the ways to persecute a Christian was just to take their outer garment. Come by, take their... Take what they needed for necessity. So what is Jesus saying? He's simply saying the same principle again in a second way. He's saying if they take your cloak, if they take your outer garment, listen, trust the Lord. Don't retaliate and do to them what they've done to you. Don't do that. In other words, Christian love is not only a a non uh, or willingly vengeful, Less love or a willingly vulnerable love, it is a non vengeful love. It's a non vengeful love. That is simply to say it this way that Christian love sees the situation that it's in as a mission field rather than a minefield. So when confrontation comes and somebody's attacking and somebody's wanting to Remove even the things that you need for necessity. Don't treat that as a minefield that you need to get in a battle at. Don't retaliate against that personal confrontation. Just embrace it as a mission opportunity. Think about all the selfish agendas that are perpetuated in our society today. Homosexual agenda transgender agenda, the abortion agenda, the anti-marriage agenda. I don't know if many of you know this, but recently our 
our government did one of the greatest acts of terrorism upon our country that could have been enacted, and that was the Defense for Marriage Act, which wasn't a defense for marriage at all. It was a defense against true godly marriage and put into law, codified into law, the fact that every state must recognize a marriage between anybody to anything. What does a Christian do when we face that? All of these people desire to remove from us our necessities, things of life that we hold true and dear and love because the Scriptures teach it. What do we do? We don't retaliate. These enemies are enemies of the truth, and because they're enemies of the truth, they're our mission field. We're not going to change anybody's heart by political means. The only way a heart is changed by the gospel. And so we to continue to come with the truth out of love for their souls. That's how we battle. We battle with the truth. Speak the truth without retaliation. So Christian love is willingly vulnerable, but relentless. And it's non-vengeful, but relentless. Third, third illustration Verse 30, give attention to every, or give to everyone who asks of you. Give to everyone who asks of you. This is a personal illustration from your own personal economics. Personal economics. First, it's personal humiliation. Then it's personal confrontation. Now here's personal economics. You say, what's Jesus talking about? He's talking about how we view our money in light of the principle of love. How we view our economics in light of the principle of love. This is someone who has a need. They come and they say to you, hey, I know you have this. Can you help me? They have a genuine need. Jesus says, just give it. Give to everyone who asks of you. Minister to them with it. And I, you say, is that really the context of what he's saying? I believe it is the context because Jesus particularly will say later in verse 34, if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? He's using that as the, the follow-up for what he's saying here. So he's talking about economics. If you have it, give it. Minister to them. Give. Don't sit around hoping for some kind of reciprocation to you. Don't give with that kind of idea in your minds. In other words, Christian love is always willing to help. Christian love is always there willing to help without the expectation of receiving anything in return. We could principalize it like this. Christian love is a self-denying love. It's a self-denying love. It's a willingly vulnerable love. It's a non-vengeful love. It's a self-denying love. Someone has a need. I can meet that need. And I'm just going to keep loving them to meet that need. Now, I know what some of us are thinking because this went through my mind. Jesus isn't necessarily referring to the beggar on the street. It's not what he's referring to necessarily. 
In other words, this isn't the guy who seems to have a need, but he just simply wants to take advantage of the general generosity of others. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. The poor are always with them. Jesus says, listen, you always had the poor with you. No, this is someone with a genuine need, and they ask you, and they come to you. Why? Because they know you're a Christian. You've been living your life out. You've been preaching the truth. You've been living the truth. They know you are a Christian. They know it's because you claim the Son of Man as your Savior. And they come and they say, hey, listen, I have an issue. I have a need. Can you help me with it? Can you give to me? Jesus says, go ahead and give. Why? Because in doing that, you are showing them the grace of God and you are showing them the care for their soul. So Christian love is, a, is willingly vulnerable. Christian love is willingly non-vengeful and it's willingly self-denying. All the while, it is relentless. All the while, it doesn't stop caring for the very soul and concern for the soul of that person. Then notice what he says in verse 30, the rest of verse 30, and whoever takes away what is yours, this is the fourth illustration, whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. We have personal economics, this is personal property. Similar to the last one, it's similar to the one he gives at the beginning of verse 30. You lend out your stuff, don't sit around clamoring for its return. Right, you're going to give, Maybe it's giving something. Don't sit around clamoring for its return. I think there's a principle here, right? There's a principle that we need to understand. And the principle is this. For us, we need to understand that when it comes to our stuff, when it comes to all the stuff that we've accumulated, the stuff that God has allowed us to have over our lifetime, listen, we lose less by letting our stuff be lent out, even if it's sinfully kept away from us by the person we lend it out to, than we lose by being selfish in our heart and clamoring for its return. In other words, it's better for us to suffer the loss of stuff, the loss of things, than it is for us to desire to hold on to that stuff and let that rule our hearts. That's the principle. It's better to just let that stuff go. It's all God's anyway. So we have to hold our stuff with open hands. This is not mine, it's God's. God wants to use it that way, so be it. It's all His. So we may be humiliated. We may be mistreated. We may be even robbed of our own possessions. But what is our response to be? Jesus says love. Why? Because you have a continual love for their soul. And therefore, you don't retaliate. You don't live like they live. You don't love like they love. You don't have this reciprocating kind of love. If I'll do good for you if you do good for me. You don't have that. You don't retaliate. What do you do? Verse 31, this is the principle. 
just as you want people to treat you, treat them in the same way. Uh, we know that. We teach it to our kids, right? That's the golden rule. We love the golden rule. But I'm not so sure we fully understand what God intended by that. You say, why do you say that? Because normally, normally today and even in the ancient times, it was taken and applied from the negative side rather than the positive. Jesus is giving us the positive side, but it was normally seen from the negative side. You say, what do you mean? Well, I mean this, the rabbi, the highest rabbi, Rabbi Hillel during the time, even Philo, even Socrates, the philosophers, and even Confucius took it to say this, whatever you don't like for yourself, then don't do that to or for others. Whatever you don't like for yourself, the negative side of it. In other words, only do what you like. Only do what you like for them, this reciprocating idea. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, not do what only what you'd like. Think of yourself as the highest entity. No. It's kind of, I'll scratch your back because I want my back scratched. That's not what Jesus is saying. No, Jesus isn't talking about that self-gratification game. No. That's not love. That's self-love. Jesus is calling us to true spiritual love. And therefore, we are to be most concerned for the person's soul. We're to be most concerned for their spiritual need. We're to be most concerned for their spiritual growth if they are a Christian and they're sinning against us, but we're to be most concerned for their eternal soul if they're a non-Christian. And so what they need most is for their spiritual life to be shown the truth. That's what we're concerned with. To follow the truth. And so Jesus says we are to treat others in the same way. We, we are to help and to support that which is truly a blessing in their life because that's exactly what we'd hope others would do for us when we're responding in a sinful way. And I think we get an explanation of this from the Apostle Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3. I want us to go there just for a moment. 1 Peter chapter 3. I think Peter gives us an example of this in our relationships with one another. Being under persecution. How we are to live. You remember what he said in chapter 2, right? You're a newborn babe, long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow. He said, we, we come to Christ, the living stone. He's, he's the, the cornerstone. We are founded in Him. We live by Him. This is who we are. And so he says in chapter 2 and verse 11, I want to urge you as people who don't belong to this world anymore, you've been taken out, you're an alien and a stranger here, but you abstain from your fleshly lusts, which wage war against your soul, and instead of feeding your own self, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Why? So that in the things that you're there, you're slandered as an evildoer. See, they're against you. They're opposing you. You may on account, They may, on account of your good deeds, as they observe you or observe your good deeds, they'll glorify God in the day of visitation. I found this on the web. 
Notice what he says, verse 13, submit yourself. Right? You want to keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles? Here it is. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake. To what? To every human institution? That rubs against the grain in our heart, especially in days like today. doesn't matter if it's a king in authority, a governor sent by him to punish evildoers and praise those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. And he goes down a little farther, verse 18, Servants, you be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good but those and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Why? For this finds favor, that's grace. If for the sake of conscience towards God, a man bears up under sorrows and suffering unjustly. Gives the other example, the other side, what credit is you to you if you suffer for doing the wrong thing? There's no favor in that. Then he gives this example from Christ. For you've been called for this purpose. Verse 21, why? Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Well, what were those steps? Well, he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he didn't revile in return. While he was suffering, he didn't utter any threats. He just kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. He didn't say, I'm going to take things into my own hands. This is not right. I shouldn't be treated like this. I've done the right thing. I've lived righteously. I've done all the things right. I've acted in kindness. I've acted in love. I've done all these things that I should do. I can't believe I'm doing this, so I'm going to take it into my own hands and act out upon them. No, he just trusted the Lord. He trusted the Father. Why? Because it's Him who judges righteously. Even in my best day of judgment, particularly us who are not God, our best day of judgment is still a self-justifying justice. My most righteous judgment against somebody is still an unrighteous judgment because I'm always for me. Jesus didn't even do that. He entrusted Himself to the One who judges righteously, who is God Himself, and He bore our sins in His body on the cross that He might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds we were healed. By His wounds we were healed. You say, well, how far does this go? Well, it goes all the way to every aspect of our life. Chapter 3, in the same way... You wives, be submissive to your own husbands. Verse 7, And you husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way. You see, the wife is to be submissive to her husband. Why? Because that's understanding who God is in her life, and she's to carry out her submission to God, her desire to live for God in a right kind of way as she loves God with her whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and therefore she carries out the responsibility and the way in which God has designed her in that relationship as she submits to God, and the husband does the same thing. All to God, all to His glory, all because we say with our mouths we love God. That's why Paul can, or Peter can say in verse 8, to sum up, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil, insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called to this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Well, is there anything that, that, what's this all going to do? I mean, how is this all going to play itself out? Peter goes on to say in verse 13 of chapter 3, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? 
But even if you should suffer for the sake of your righteousness, you're blessed. So don't fear the intimidation. Don't be troubled. But what? Sanctify Christ. Set Christ apart. Have Christ as that anchor that He is in your heart as Lord, Master in your heart, always being ready to make a defense, right? This is the evangelistic outward, caring for the soul no matter what's going on. Make a defense for everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Galatians 1, 6, 1, right? Go to them with gentleness, humility in your heart. And keep a good conscience, right? Have your heart clean conscience before the Lord. So that in the, and before them, so that in the thing which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Because it's better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. This is exactly what Jesus is saying in Luke chapter 6. The religious unbeliever doesn't know anything about that kind of love. Why? Because they don't know Him who is love. They don't know the truth. And therefore, it's not possible for them to love like that. They say, I'll love you as long as you don't do something against me. As long as you do good to me, then I'll do good to you. That's, that's unchristian love. At the very moment, in those moments that we don't act like them, they're seeing the love of Christ. They're seeing just how God treats them, even at that very moment, because in their unbelief, they're still breathing His air. They're still receiving His grace upon their lives that they do not deserve. And so Jesus says, you love differently than that. You love differently than the world loves. You seek the best for them by way of the truth, just as you want others to do for you. When you're in sin, you do for them as they are in sin. And so this is this is a great time in the world to love, isn't it? This is transformational. We're, we're not going to change the world by our political prowess. No. It's a great time to love because the world doesn't understand this kind of love. They need to see it. That's why Peter said in 2 Peter 2.21, you've been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, left you an example. Jesus walked like His Father. Jesus trusted in the sovereign plan of the Father, even when He was humiliated to the point of the cross. Jesus said to Pilate, as He was standing there, you would have no power over me unless it had been given to you by my Father above. He cared for souls. We're to be like that in the act of doing that. Jesus was led to the cross. Jesus died for sinners like us, those who were His enemies, those who were killing Him. 
He was showing them the purest and the highest form of love. So what's Jesus saying? Listen, you're blessed, right? The kingdom is yours, poor in spirit, hungering for righteousness, mourning over your sin. You're in the kingdom of God, right? So when you're persecuted, when you're attacked, when you're insulted, when you're humiliated, when people rob you, don't retaliate. Don't retaliate. In order to worship your Creator as you have been called to do, then reflect the truth of Jesus Christ to those who hate the truth. Reflect the love of Christ. We love others without retaliation. We treat them just as we would hope others would treat us if we were in their spiritual condition. That's how we treat them. That's the true Christian. Being like Jesus. Like Jesus, we're bearing witness to the truth. That's enough, isn't it? That's enough for us to chew on for a couple days at least, maybe. Think about putting into practice in our life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for loving us like this. Unfathomable riches of your grace and mercy toward us. Lord, we can never be merciful like you're merciful without Jesus Christ. Your word even tells us it's the kindness of you which draws us to repentance. The fact that you exercise a shred of love towards your enemies is remarkable from our human perspective. And yet we know that because of love, we can love, right? We don't love because we have it inherent in us to love like this, but because you first loved us, we love. Lord, I trust this will be the reflection of our lives as we submit to you. We desire to live in accordance with your word. Well, we know we mess it up. We gum it up so much. And even in those days, you continue to shower us with your grace and mercy and love. Lord, when those moments happen, may we run to you willingly, coming to you, seeking, confessing, seeking your forgiveness, knowing that in Christ we are forgiven and we can walk once again, fresh, new, in love. Knowing that nothing can snatch us out of your hand because nothing is more powerful than you. And once we're in Christ, we are secure. Thank you for that hope, that joy. Lord, use this in our lives to your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.